0: Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Wow, this is great. Give it up for Aaron Stevens. The man, the myth, the legend. It's great to see you guys this morning. Uh, I am not the usual face that's up here. The mines are in Lexington, Lexington Kentucky uh, today, which is super fun. They're actually doing the same thing that we're having here in April. The uh, They're teaching an MTA down there. So it's, like, really cool. Uh, I think, like... Drew's really good friends with like Greg down there or whatever who leads the campus ministry so they're having a blast but I'm sure that they send you their love as they're away also you'll notice there's a couple other faces missing so uh the campus is on spring break right now and actually how many you guys remember Karen Flores that went to UVA so she's actually getting married this week which is amazing and so a lot of our friends are over in Australia with her right now um, and they're celebrating her, so that's really exciting. And then we've got a bunch of Hokies in town. Yeah! And people from Radford. Yeah! Don't worry, I didn't forget you guys. Um, and uh, they're here. Uh, they're actually, they're, it's amazing. Uh, can we just give them a round of applause real quick? So they're coming and sacrificing part of their spring break to come and serve our campus ministry at JMU. Be sharing their faith, evangelizing, having fun, building memories, strengthening the team up there. Um, And so we're really grateful to have you guys. We're really grateful that you guys are here. I know that this is a sacrifice, but hopefully you guys will have a lot of fun. Uh, It's going to be a really good time. And so, uh, yeah, today we're going to continue on with our... uh, going through of Genesis. Last week, we actually had a former UVA uh, student, Wahoo Wah, and then trader to Virginia Tech, uh, Ben Hutchins. Wow. He came and preached. Uh, he's one of my best friends, um, and uh, he just came and preached. So we took a break from uh, the Genesis theme, but we're going to keep going through today together, uh, which should be really good. So if you guys can open up your Bibles to Genesis 13. Uh, the title of my lesson today is Falter to the Altar. And uh, I highlighted altar within falter, just in case you didn't pick up on the uh, little thing there. So, uh, yeah, we'll be talking about that. But um, the theme that we've been talking about as a family is building family, uh, which has been really cool. This is actually one of the strengths, I think, of Blue Ridge is is being a family. Um, But we want to go deeper in that. And so we've been studying that out through Genesis. And um, we're at this. uh, The last message that we had in Genesis was in Genesis 11. Um, And it was talking about the Tower of Babel. Uh, uh, Drew did a great job with that sermon. And essentially, Genesis 1 through 11 kind of tells the story of humanity, right? How humans uh, started off with God, and then they went and donked everything up uh, by sinning and taking the fruit for themselves. And then you see over and over again these stories of just this repeated cycles of sin. So much that God destroys the whole world but saves a remnant through Noah. And then all of these people kind of spread over the earth. And they build this tower with one language and then God scatters them. And so what happens is after that scattering, basically, there's this story in Genesis 11 of it goes back to Noah's son. It talks about uh, in the line of Shem, one of his sons of of this family lineage. And what that's leading into in Genesis 12 is actually the start of talking about instead of the whole world and, and all humanity talking about one family. And one family that God chose to save the whole world through. It's really, really powerful. And so I'm going to do a quick little run through uh, leading us up to Genesis 13 and kind of what's going on in this passages, okay? okay, So we're going to do a little family history here. Um, so in Genesis 11, you guys can just kind of read on the screen. I'm going to be going to different places. But in Genesis 11, verse 26, uh, this is kind of that line of Shem right after the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, it says... And after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While, while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sari, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abraham. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Okay, so a lot of history stuff, but basically this is what's going on. So you got this dude, Terah. He's a happy little guy there. And um, he has three kids. So this is in the line of Shem. He has Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran has a son named Lot, okay? And what happens is, essentially, Haran dies, which is sad news. And um, it's actually, you know, you've, they've had this whole genealogy, but the question is, who's going to be next to carry on the family line? Um, What's kind of weird is Nahor basically marries Lot's sister, and then we don't hear anything about them having kids. And then Abram and his wife are uh, are actually, um, uh, they're not able to conceive. They're not able to have children. And so the, the one that we'd actually anticipate to be significant in this story is Lot. Um, Lot's really the only one that's thought to have been able to carry on the family line here. And... It's actually really interesting because um, during this time, Lot would have been recognized. You know, Abraham and Lot had a very unique relationship. The, the question is, why does Terah set off on this journey without Nahor and he takes Abraham and Lot? And essentially, Abram's not able to have any children and Lot's the child of his dead brother. And so in some ways, Lot's almost kind of like a son to him. Lot, uh, Lot is, is kind of like Abraham's child. He's stepping in, in place of Haran, as the primary elder of the family after uh, Terah dies, to kind of be able to carry on the family. But what's really interesting about this relationship is that actually Lot, in a lot of ways, is kind of the one that's supposed to carry on the family. He's actually given a lot of power and responsibility and individuality in Abraham's. Even though Abram could treat him like a son and treat him as lower, he actually often treats him as his equal as a kinsman, as a friend, um, in place of Haran. Um, and we're going to see this dynamic play out, but this is important for the story. And so essentially what they do is the, they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans, which basically just means Ur of Babylonia, and they travel all the way up. Let's see if I can. They travel all the way up to Haran here, and, uh, and, then, and then Terah dies. And so what we see after that is basically Terah dies and... We're expecting – we're not thinking much of Abram. We're not thinking that God has a plan for Abram. We're thinking that actually the main heir that we're going to be focusing on is Lot. But then God comes to Abram out of nowhere, and it's really amazing. And it says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And so – you know, God's directive to Abraham doesn't really have any explicit directions, but it gets more and more specific. It says go from your country, from your people and from your father's household. Right. So it's getting more and more specific to this land that I will show you. But he doesn't tell him the land to go to. And so it's Abraham is simply kind of pointed in the right direction here. He just knows he needs to get up and go. And the, the ending point of the pilgrimage is unclear. But, but he's promised that God will show him the land, right? And so you got to imagine, he's getting up from everything that he's ever known, and he's just going. He's like, all right, well, God told me to go, so I'm going. And this takes great faith. I mean, he's, he's walking with his whole family and the whole future of his line. And then in verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, Once he arrives in Canaan, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there, he went onward toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and IE on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. You know, interestingly here, the promise changes in verse one. It says that God will show him the land. But in verse seven, it says that God will give this land to his offspring. Right. Show only becomes give when Abraham makes his move. Once Abram obeys, it goes from I'm going to show you a land to I'm going to give you a land. And this is a huge memorable moment because God God is promising Abram not just that he's going to be in this land and that he's going to be safe, but that he's actually going to have kids. This changes the whole game. He's traveling with Lot, expecting to die alone with Sarai essentially, and then for Lot to be the heir that God is favoring, that God is going to produce children for that God's going to carry the family through instead of him. But God makes him this promise here that this place isn't just going to be a place where you have children, but that you are going to like your children are going to multiply like crazy. And you're going to have this whole nation. It's, it's amazing. And so what he does is he builds an altar and this wouldn't have been like the Old Testament altar where they were giving a bunch of sacrifices. Essentially, it would have just been like one stone or a pile of stones or maybe just some earth that's kind of piled up. But what it would have served as is a reminder that this is a reminder that this is where God made me a promise. This is where God gave his word to yep. me. That's right. And so, as the readers, we're really excited about what's happening here. But then things take a turn for the worst. So, what happens is he goes to Egypt, right? Basically, this land that God promises him, that he gives him this promise for, it has a famine. And it's so severe that he actually has to go to Egypt, which is... So foreshadowing a ton of stuff. But anyways, uh, we won't get into all that. So in Genesis 12, verse 16, um, basically what happens is, you know, he's he's making his way to, to, to Egypt and his wife is very beautiful. And so he fears for his life. And in his fear, he risks the whole covenant promise that God just made him by giving his wife to Pharaoh. He essentially is this person that's supposed to bear the seed for him of this promise, he gives up to another man to be his wife. And he doesn't care for her. He doesn't consult God, notably in this passage at all. He just gets fearful of what's going to happen to himself. And so he really starts to break the family that God is trying to build through him. It says in verse 16, talking about Pharaoh here, Pharaoh, he treated Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then here's your wife. Take her and go. Go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. And so this is kind of where we're picking up in Genesis 13 here. Um, This is kind of the setting. Basically, Pharaoh has had more conviction about Abram's sin than he did. And we're kind of, basically what he's going to do is he's going to start making his way. So what he did was, When God called him to leave, he went from here in Haran all the way down to Canaan, right here. But then there was a famine, went to Egypt, and now he's on his way back. And that's where we're picking up in Genesis 13. So let's read. Genesis 13, verse 1. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went up from place to place until he came to Bethel to the place he had to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar there Abram called on the name of the Lord Now Lot who was moving about while they stayed together for their possessions were so great that they had not been able to stay together Oh I'm so sorry But the land could not support them while they stayed together for the possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and lots. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. Okay, so in God's grace, he allows everyone to escape from Egypt unharmed. Right. And even gives them treasure despite Abram's sin. It's a really amazing moment. But as they begin to make their way back up to Canaan, there's probably a heaviness that's pervading this journey and a quietness because Abram's broken the trust in his marriage. He's given his wife over to another man out of fear for himself. And the treasure that he accrued there, rather than being tied to a divine blessing from God, it serves as a reminder of the price he he paid for giving his wife away. And not only was that the cost of his wife's trust, but it also becomes a source of hostility between his herdsman and the herdsman of his cousin, Lot. And it's, all of this is tearing apart at the family that God's trying to build through him. And I think that there's, you know, the scripture even mentions that the land is big enough for the Canaanites and the Perizzites to dwell in. But that these two family members, because of this sin, cannot live together in harmony. And... You know, I think that there's something to be noted here that short-term blessings that come from making fearful decisions often lead to long-term harm down the road for people you care about. Making a quick decision in fear, like, man, okay, I'm just gonna go for this sin. I'm just gonna do what's easiest. I'm just gonna take the short way out. I'm just gonna preserve myself. Often, even though that might come with a seeming blessing in the moment, you know how it is. When you lie, and then it just builds and builds and builds and builds. It gets worse and worse. And so, God's vision to build a family through this guy. He's kind of messing it all up. You know, he's destroying the family that God's trying to make through him. And so Abraham tries to mend the situation and does something quite unusual that, again, jeopardizes God's promise. In the next section of scripture here, it says, So Abraham said to Lot, right? These herdsmen are arguing, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and sat out toward the east The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. As the eldest leader and patriarch in the family, it's already really strange that Abram would have allowed Lot to have his own possessions in the first place. And that's part of out of respect for Lot and out of respect for his dead brother. But here he actually lets Lot choose the land he wants first. And this is something that never would happen. Like as the it, it always talks about Lot in subordination to Abram, wherever Abram goes, he, they bring Lot with him. But here, Lot's able; he gives Lot the choice to choose for himself. And some scholars think he did this out of generosity. Others think out of maybe like trying to preserve himself again. But regardless, he now again risks ruining God's promise instead of inheriting the land that God wanted to give his descendants. Just get letting, leaving it up to Lot to choose for himself, right? And so if Lot would have chosen the land of Canaan, again, he wouldn't have had God's promise fulfilled in his life. And it says that Lot, Lot saw the land. Uh, this is actually the same word that was used when uh, Eve saw the fruit. And he looked at it, and, and it looked better, right? It, it says it looked like the Garden of Eden. Um, and, and he even compares it to Egypt, while Abraham, it, and so it looks like the better land, but and Abraham's essentially left with the desert. And so he takes it. And so where we're left in this place, I know that this has been a ton of context, but where we're left in this place is that Abram has blown it over and over again. Lot's got the good land and he's still the husband of a barren wife. And he seems like the least likely and least qualified to be God's chosen one for carrying the for, family forward. That God wants to use to change the world. And you know I think for for us. You know have you ever felt like you've just blown it so much. That even though God is working. You just feel like you can't be the person that he uses at all. Like why is it not someone else? Why is God not using someone else? Why me? I've messed up so much. I think Abram probably was feeling like that right now. I think he could have felt like God's giving him the short end of the stick. You know, rather than having the land that's watered like the Garden of Eden, he's given the Rocky Mountain desert land uh, for his offspring. God promised this land. But, you know, in that land, there was a famine and he had to go to Egypt. So why is God sending me here? Right. Like, why is God sending me to a place that's less good? And why, after all of these mistakes, would he ever use me? But something I appreciate about Abram in this passage is that in the midst of all the turmoil, as he's coming back from the biggest mistake of his life in Egypt, he returns to the altar that he built when he first received the promise of God. And it says that, that it was there that he called on the name of the Lord. And, and this altar was between Bethel and IE, which literally translates to between the house of God and between ruin. So. And I I think that that's kind of the story of his life <laughs> He's between the house of god and he's between com- Completely ruining it all all the time and i've been there, you know I've been in a place where I felt like man. I feel like i'm i'm right between Being with god and his house and totally ruining it all because of my sin yeah. um I remember When I was a senior in high school, I was getting ready to go to college and uh I, like, used to struggle with, like, OCD and, like, depression as a kid or whatever. And so I just got this thought in my brain, like, that literally for eight months, I was just having obsessive thoughts over that just God's not there. Like, God's not real. Um, God isn't who he actually says he is, and God isn't, isn't trustworthy. And I remember, like, it hit me, like, right after, like, a youth corps over the summer, and for months, like literally for eight months, like I could not get this thought out of my head. And I remember just slowly it dragging me into deeper and deeper levels of just feeling like God can't use me. Like I was so frustrated because I wanted to believe in God. I wanted to have a close relationship with God. I wanted God uh, to be close to me. I was calling out to him. I was praying to him. I was talking to him. I was like getting advice. I was reading all these books and I just didn't feel like I could believe in God. I just felt like, man, like What's the real reason behind this? How do I know that I can trust the Bible and it was tearing my life apart? I remember just like being at a place where I was so low like I was just walking on the street uh, And I was just like thinking about like jumping in front of a car because I was like man if I don't have if I don't have God I have nothing in this life and but I can't I can't force myself to believe in this I can't force myself to get into this place And I just remember between being this place of ruin and this place of I want to be near the house of God and I'm calling out, but I don't even know if you're there. And, you know, I think we've probably all been in a place like that. Right. Maybe you're in a bit of an uncertain place or God's calling you to an uncertain future. And you feel like, man, I don't know what's going to happen. I feel like I'm between ruin and being between the house of God. Maybe like Abraham as he was called to go to Canaan. Maybe you feel like where you're at is cursed. Maybe you just feel like where you're at, the job that I'm in, the situation that I'm in, the marriage that I'm in, the relationships that I'm in. This is just, this is cursed. Like, this is bad. This is terrible. Um, Maybe you've made some really big mistakes lately, right? Maybe you've got some big sin that you don't want to talk about with somebody. Uh, Abram, like in Egypt, right? Like, he made big mistakes. Um, Maybe there's family tension going on, like Abram. Uh, with sari with his wife and with his cousin right maybe you've got family tension or maybe you've got family loss that's happened maybe you feel like god's just giving you the second best in life right you see the land that other people get and you see what you have and you feel like man i don't i don't have the best thing i don't have the thing that god really god says he wants to give me life to the full but i feel like i'm just getting leftovers maybe you feel like you've got something good but it's turning out to not be so good, right? Like God gives me this promise. I think it's going to be amazing. But then there's famine. Then there's challenge. Maybe you're studying the Bible and you just don't feel like you can trust God. Is he really going to work for my God? Good. Is he really sending me someplace? Right. Is he really going to take care of me? Maybe you're tempted to take everything into your own hands and you feel like God hasn't come through in a long time. It's been years since I received the promise and I don't, I'm not seeing God come through. And I think that's the time where we got to falter. To the altar. You know, the thing I love about Abraham is even though he was a hot mess, like for most of his life, um, the plate, when he was between ruin and the house of God, that's where he built his altar. That's where he called out to the Lord. That's where he had to remember the promises of God. It wasn't in the times where everything was perfect, it wasn't in the times where he was like being super successful. Once he received the promise, he had to go back to where he first received it. And he had to call out to the Lord and get his heart right so that he could see and trust the God that's working in our lives today. And, you know, for us, you know, who do you call on in the face of your mistakes? What do you go to in the face of your blunders or uncertainty? You know, what have you set up your altar to when you're in between the place of ruin and the house of God? What do you go to to call upon to make yourself feel better? Do you just go to apathy and like giving into like just watching hours of Netflix or just disconnecting from the world through like pornography and video games? Like, do you do you just kind of let let things go or do you do you actually run to God? What's that? And I just want to encourage you guys, you know, build your altar of worship no matter where you're at. You've got to go back to the promises of God if you think you're between the brink of ruin and the brink of the house of God. You've got to go back and call out. And, you know, for Abraham, in the midst of all this, he had a God whose promises were trustworthy. And so let's finish the story here of this chapter um, and see how God was faithful. It says, so right after it talks about um, Lot getting the land of Sodom that was well watered like the Garden of Eden. In verse 13, it says, Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of that land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. You know, when they're choosing the lands, when they're choosing between the land of Sodom, which looks well watered like the Garden of Eden and the mountain desert. What they both don't know is that there's a ton of sin that's going on in Sodom. Even though it looks great, that place is rotting from the inside out and God is about to destroy it. And it looked good up front, but it was a terrible place. And God was protecting Abram the whole time throughout all of his mistakes over and over again, all of his blunders, all of his threats to the promise. God kept providing every time. And this is the first time that God makes the promise, not just to Abram's offspring, but to him. He says, I am giving it to you. God was giving him a place that would last and provide way more long-term fulfillment than the fleeting pleasures of Sodom. And, you know, for us, I think God's providence extends beyond our own knowledge or ability or blunders to work for the good of those who love him. In Romans 8, it says, and we know, I love the certainty of that. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called According to his purpose God is trustworthy guys God is trustworthy We are in control of very little When it comes to the cosmic reality That we live in We are on a little floating rock amidst 250 billion galaxies And I think sometimes We can think that the unknown And our mistakes are, are, are deal breakers For God's mercy and goodness Coming through in our lives That our mistakes I've blown it I'm not good enough And God's mercy can't do anything about this. We feel that if we mess up, that we're all out of hope. Even with all the blunders and sin of Abraham and with the curse uh, that was on the land and getting second pick, God made him a promise that ultimately led for his good. And the thing is, it didn't look like the best thing in the moment, but it was the place of God's promise. And a place within God's promise is always better, even if it doesn't look as promising for the future. A place within God's promise is always better than a place that looks promising on the outside, but isn't within it. And when we trust the promise and we trust the one who promises, we can walk about in it freely, whether it seems like the best thing in the moment or not. You know, I was wondering why God tells him not only to look north, east, south and west, but then to walk, go walk through the length and breadth of the land. Why does he tell him to do both? And I think God was just like, I just want you to go and look and soak up every bit. You have no idea the magnitude of goodness that lies behind what I've given you. Like, Abram's walking around in this land knowing that he's going to have kids, but I don't think he had any idea about how huge God's plan was to work through this one man. The whole rest of the Bible is because of this one person. It's all through his family. This old geezer walking throughout the land of Canaan, like, God brought Jesus through this dude to save all of us here. He had no idea. It looked like second best, but man, this is the whole story of God's salvation for humankind. It's amazing. He's like, just go soak it up. Walk about freely in my promise. This is the best. You have no idea, but it is totally the best. I've got this crazy plan for your unborn children that will probably come in like 20 years. And I'm going to save the whole world through you in this place. From a humanistic perspective, sometimes God's plan for us and our lives might seem like second best. It might seem unfair and difficult. Maybe it's like, you you know, you've been waiting on a spouse that hasn't come through. Maybe you're struggling with, you know, your kids aren't doing as well as you thought. You know, maybe, maybe there's a lot of challenges that we face. But that's when we have to trust the one that makes the promise. God is always working for our good and never wants what's second best for us. He always wants what's best for us. And if we don't trust the one that makes the promise, we'll always be a slave to fear. We will always be a slave to fear if we can't trust the one that makes the promise. There will always be uncertainty. There will always be another hill to climb. There will always, it'll always seem like the grass is greener somewhere else. But if we can trust the one who makes the promise, we can walk about freely and be content when we look around us, knowing that God is doing something bigger than we can ever imagine. And so I just want to encourage you guys, no matter where you're at right now, to build an altar to the Lord and to call out <laughs> to his name, to remember God's promise, to go back and remember what God has promised you. For you. We got to hold on to things like this. in the moments that we're struggling, we got to have promises that we can go back to, that we remember in the good times and say, no, my God is a God who provides. And even though I don't see it right now, this is the best thing for me. Yeah. And so with that, Uh, praise God to him be the glory and let's sing one final song.